Will you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 10, Matthew chapter 10, and we'll be looking at a passage there, and we want everybody to be able to do so. So these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back, and if you don't have a Bible, just get their attention. They'll get one of those to you that is marked already at Matthew 10. Billy Bean was one of the nation's most highly rated Major League Baseball prospects when he graduated from his San Diego high school in 1980. That summer, like many other prospects, he participated in the Major League Baseball tryouts around the country, and he wowed the scouts who were there with his combination of speed and power and overall athletic ability. And they determined all of those by traditional measures that they would use. Time in the then 40-yard dash, arm strength, bat speed, and so on. He not only excelled in all of those, but when he was sized up as a physical specimen, he had what many scouts just called the look. A rare, can't-miss prospect. And so as a result, he was drafted in the first round by the New York Mets that year. But the can't-miss prospect missed, and badly. He had a short career of six years spent with four different teams, one of those years with the Tigers. And in those six years, he played in only 148 games. Now, to put that number of 148 games in perspective, a single major league season is 162. So in those six years, he played an average of 25 games a year. And in those 25 games, he was awful. In his career, he got up to bat 301 times. He struck out 80 of those, or more than one out of every four times he came to the plate. And for all that vaunted power, he hit only three home runs in his career, and he batted an average of 219. Now, just to give you an idea how bad that is, I could bat 219. All right, not really. But suffice it to say that Billy Bean, a first-round draft choice, a can't-miss prospect, was an absolute bust as a major leaguer. I wonder what he's doing today. Well, here's what he's doing today. Since 1997, he's been the general manager of a team called the Oakland Athletics. Now, in his job, one of the things he has to do is acquire talented players for his team, either through drafting young players or signing older ones. By all accounts, he's done an amazing job. During his 17 years as general manager, only four teams out of 30 have made the playoffs more often than the Oakland Athletics. And those four teams have outspent Oakland on their payroll by an average of more than a billion, that's with a B, dollars during that time. So how is it that he's been successful with one of the lowest payrolls in the league year after year? How is it that he gets talent and gets it relatively cheap? It's because of this, friends. He looks for things that others do not. He doesn't care about all the traditional, unreliable measures that the other scouts use. After all, he knows how unreliable they are. They were used on him. The physical build, the bat speed, the arm strength, the time in the 40... Instead, he looks at what the guy has actually done on the field. And so he doesn't draft players right out of high school. 
And he uses statistics, very complicated statistics, to find out whether he gets on base regularly, whether he gets hits in timely situations, whether he actually throws people out as an outfielder or a catcher, whatever his arm strength is, whether a pitcher gets batters out, and so on. He's concluded that there really is no such thing as the look. There is no such thing as a can't-miss prospect based upon traditional measures. He looks for things that others do not. Now, what does all that have to do with today's message? You know, friends, God sees and God's eva- God evaluates in ways that others do not. The Creator made us, and so, of course, He knows all about us. He knows how we are wired and how we're uniquely designed And he knows what changes and refinements we need to be successful in his service. If you were with us last week, as we continue our series called Portraits of Grace, we saw that God uses regular people. We saw that in the calling of his first 12 followers, the apostles, sometimes called the disciples. Today I want to focus on the calling of a particular follower and how Jesus clearly sized up what he was and then in turn shaped him into what he needed to become. So please look at Matthew chapter 10 and verse 2. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we look at the life of Peter. Father, we thank you for the freedom, the opportunity, the health, and the desire that comes from you for us to be here. We thank you, Lord, for this space. We thank you for one another, the opportunity to have this great privilege of gathering around your word. Help us, Lord, to put the distractions that we brought with us away from our minds so that we have attentive minds and open hearts to what you tell us. May we leave better equipped to bring glory to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. As each week, we have an outline inserted in your program. If you haven't already gotten that out, I encourage you, please take a look at that now. We're going to bounce through the items that I have there based upon what we will see in Scripture from the life of this one Simon, also called Peter. The first thing I say in that outline is this. Our calling is built on our nature. Our calling is built on our nature. Let me explain what I mean. Our calling is built on our nature. In Scripture, there are four full lists of the names of Jesus' first 12 followers, and they are all arranged in a particular way for a particular reason. The first of those lists is the one that you have in front of you in Matthew 10. Please take a look again, beginning in verse 2. These are the names of the 12 apostles, first Simon, who is called Peter, And his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. I want you to notice a few things about this list and then the three others that I will show you in just a bit. These lists of Jesus' first 12 followers are listed roughly in order of the time of their calling. You may remember from last week, we looked at John chapter 1, and we saw there that Andrew and John met Jesus first. And then in turn, Andrew sought out his brother Peter, 
And then James came along because he is John's brother, and he and Andrew and Peter and John were partners in the fishing business. Those are the first four names in the list, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They were the first to be called by Jesus. And then the verse 3 starts with another group in Matthew 10. And we saw last week that they were called the next day. So these first four are called on that first day. And then the next day, the Bible tells us, Jesus called Nathanael and then Philip. And you see those beginning in verse 3 of Matthew 10. Philip, Bartholomew, also known as Nathanael, Thomas, and Matthew. And then there's a third group of four who were called still later. James, you see in verse 4, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, also known elsewhere as Judas, son of James, Simon the Zealot, and then the infamous Judas Iscariot. Now, names like Simon and Judas and James were very extremely common in those days. So you have even in this group more than one with those names. And to distinguish them, you have what we read in verse 2. James, we've got a couple of James. In verse 2, he is James the son of Zebedee. In verse 4, James the son of Alphaeus. Or in verse 2, you have Simon. And then in verse 4, you have Simon the zealot. And we're going to see that the one called Thaddeus is elsewhere called Judas son of James. Not to be confused with Judas the traitor. Yikes. So... Take out a half sheet of paper. We're going to have a quiz on that right now, all right? No, really, don't worry about all of that. But here's what you do need to see. There are four lists of the twelve, and in all of them, they are in three groups of four. So you've got these four lists, and each of those four lists has three groups of four names. And each of the three groups is led by the same name. So the order of the others in the group might vary, but the lead name is always the same. Twelve names in three groups of four. So look again at Matthew 10. The first group is Simon or Peter, Andrew, James, and John. The next group is Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew. The last group is James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. Now, you've got these three groups of four, then, in each of these lists, and the leader is always the same. That means that the first, the fifth, and the ninth names are the leaders of each of those groups, the first, the fifth, and the ninth. Simon, or Peter, is first, and then he's followed by the three others in his group. Philip and the others were called the, after that, and Philip, then, is the fifth name, leading the second group, followed by the three others in that group, and then James is the ninth, followed by the three in his group. And that's what you see in these other three passages that have the lists. Mark chapter 3, for example. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Again, notice the first, the fifth, and the ninth are the same. Peter, Philip, James, son of Alphaeus. And then in Luke chapter 6, likewise, Jesus called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter. His brother Andrew, James, John, and then here's Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who's called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, 
and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And then finally, the last of these four lists in Acts chapter 1. It says that these first followers went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those who present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew. And then Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew. James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. And you may notice that we are missing one name. At this point, Judas Iscariot is no longer there. He has betrayed the Lord, and he has taken his own life. Not only are there three groups with a leader for each, but the whole group is always led. The whole group of 12 is always led by the same guy, Simon called Peter. So when verse 2 says this, these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter. Notice it doesn't number the rest of them. It says, first, Simon, Peter. And then it doesn't say, second and third. The only one that is numbered is, is Peter. And that's because it's not saying, now here is a list, and he just happens to be first. In fact, the word first in Greek that's translated first here means chief, the leader of a group. Simon, whom Jesus nicknamed Peter for reasons we'll see in a bit, was the leader of the apostles. Always named first and named more than any other of Jesus' first followers. So why this guy? Why Simon Peter? Because God looks at things other people don't. And I say in your outline that God sees our qualities. God sees our qualities. Our calling is based upon our nature, and as part of that nature, the one who made us and knows us intimately sees our qualities. And what qualities did Jesus know about and see in Simon? Well, one of those was his intense desire to know that was in turn going to help him be the leader that he would become, an intense desire to just know what was going on. And that's why Peter's the guy always asking the questions. In fact, we see in Matthew chapter 15, just one of many examples, Peter's the one who speaks up and he says, explain the parable to us, I want to know. Jesus saw this quality of a desire to know that would help him then in the leadership that Jesus would assign to him, but not only a desire to know, but, ra- but also a desire to act and to take initiative in acting. And that's why if you've read through the gospel accounts, of the life of Jesus and his first followers, it is invariably Peter as the one who takes initiative and says, let's go, let's do. In fact, in Matthew chapter 16, we have an episode of Jesus and these first followers, and it says Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do the crowds, who do the people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus said, who does the the hoi polloi, who do the people in general say that I am? But then the next verse, he says this, but what about you? What about you, those that I have called? Who do you say I am? Ah, so you've got them there. Jesus says, who does everybody else say? And they give these answers, and now he says, but what about you guys? Who do you say that I am? And who do you think is going to talk first? And the first one to speak is Peter in the next verse. He answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
On the night before Jesus was crucified, as religious leaders and soldiers came to arrest him, and probably hundreds of soldiers, Peter was with him, ready to take action, you may recall. The Bible tells us that in the midst of all of these soldiers, in the midst of these religious leaders who are coming to arrest Jesus, in John chapter 18, Simon Peter, who had a sword, <laughs> he drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Now, he is probably trying to take this guy's head off. And the guy ducks. And, and Peter's a fisherman, not a swordsman. But he gets an ear, and whether he gets anything or not, the point is, Peter's a guy who doesn't just talk, he does. He was a guy who had a desire to know, always asking the questions. He was the guy who would be first to step out and do what he believed needed to be done. Sometimes he was mistaken about what needed to be done, but ready to do it. And another quality that Christ undoubtedly saw in him was his desire to be a participant. To not just watch the action, but be in the action. He would initiate the action often, as we've seen, but he wanted to be right in the middle of where the action was. In, even in his failures, which are many and recorded and memorialized in Scripture, even in his failures, and even in his denial of the Lord, I want you to hear this. Peter was in a position to fail. He wanted to be where the action was. He most often was, and therefore he was in a position to get it right and often to get it wrong. And many people will look at a guy like that and they will say, well, you know, he's so often getting it wrong. But the truth is, at least he was in position to get it wrong. Most of us stand back and watch other people. God had made this man to be a leader. And he wanted to be involved and in where the action was. And so, remember one of his failures when he walked on the water. Jesus is, meets with his disciples, they're in a boat, and, and Peter's the first one to get out of the boat and to begin to walk toward him. Now he loses trust, and he takes his eyes off Jesus, and he begins to sink. But he was there in order to fail. Nobody else was. Everybody else is in the boat. This will be my last baseball illustration. But I remember in the 84 season when the Tigers won the World Series, and their center fielder was a guy named Chet Lemon. Anybody remember Chet Lemon? Chet Lemon was often criticized because there were several times during the year when he would chase down a ball, hit out the center field, and it would hit his glove, and, and he wouldn't catch it. But here's the thing about Chet Lemon. If you watch him very closely, he was a guy who could get a jump on a fly ball better than anybody. And as a result, he got closer to the ball than most people would have. In other words, he's in a position to fail. The reason it hit his glove is because his glove was there. Most people wouldn't have been within five feet and therefore would not have been criticized for letting it hit your glove and get away. And Jesus saw these qualities in Peter, qualities that he would desperately need in the work that Jesus was going to call him to. <clears throat> and so, friends, in this, in what Jesus is doing now with, with Peter and what he sees in Peter, this is what we are like, what Peter was like by creation, by his divine design, and his designer, he cre his creator, saw that. And he sees us in ways that other people do not. He sees our qualities. But then secondly, I say, God shapes our personalities. 
He sees our qualities. We have these, each of us, innate qualities of different sorts. Many of us do not have the things I described, the qualities that Peter had. It doesn't matter what they are, you just have them. And by divine design you have them, and God has made you to have them. But then those need to be taken, that raw material needs to be taken, and shaped. And so God shapes our personalities. He teaches us lessons that often flow out of our natural tendencies. He puts us in positions in order for us to see how our natural tendencies can get us in trouble. And that's what Jesus was doing with Peter in the episode of Walking on the Water. Peter, because it was natural for him to take initiative, he's the first one to get out of the boat and walk toward him, but it also involved him failing as he wavered in his trust and he began to sink. This natural ability that Peter possessed had to be tempered by humility. And the Lord Jesus shaped him by showing him the humility that he most desperately needed. And the failure on the water is only one example. We've already seen Peter's great confession in Matthew chapter 16, but let me read for you the rest of what that passage says. Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But then Jesus said this, blessed are you, Simon, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Now, stop there. Think about what a blessing that is. You're Peter, you're the guy who likes to speak up, you're the guy who likes to know what's going on. Jesus asked this supremely important question, and you've not only given the answer, you've not only given the right answer, you've given an answer that Jesus credits as coming from the Father himself. What a great blessing he's just experienced as he's given truth from God, truth about God, and and then he speaks it to God himself, the Lord Jesus. And yet right after that, Jesus taught Peter an important but severely humbling lesson. Because Matthew 16 tells us that Jesus began to then prepare his first followers with the fact that he is going to be proceeding toward Jerusalem to suffer and to die. That Jesus is going to go where he came to be to fulfill his mission. And then Peter rebukes Jesus. Peter takes Jesus aside, rebukes him, the Bible says. This will never happen. You can't do this. You can't go there. That suffering and that death are not going to happen to you. And here are Jesus' words to him. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Wow. Talk about going from the mountain to the valley. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. You see, Peter learned a valuable, if extremely humbling, lesson that day. He learned that Satan could fill his mouth as much as God. God had, the Father had filled his mouth, revealed truth to him about who Jesus is. And now he is speaking in contradiction to the plan of God. Friends, God will arrange circumstances in our lives to teach us and refine us. And he will use all manner of means to do it. Jesus said to Peter on one occasion, in Luke 22, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. 
Well, how about the prosperity preachers? Saying that God always wants you healthy and Satan can never do anything to, t- to you. You know, just do a cursory reading of the Bible, would you? Do you remember that Satan presented himself to God and asked for permission to harm Job? Do you all remember that? He can't harm Job unless God gives that permission. And here's Jesus saying, Peter, Satan has asked. Satan wants to destroy you. Satan wanted to destroy Job. And God said, you can do these things. You spare his life. You will not destroy him. And he has asked to sift you as wheat. He has asked to destroy you. And if God left us to our own devices, we would each hurtle toward destruction. But he doesn't do that. But here's what he does do. He lets us have enough rope in order for us to learn, to teach us lessons. He leaves us to our own devices and from time to time. And when he does, we fail. But when we fail, we learn. That is why in what we call the Lord's Prayer, but as you've heard me say, it's really the disciples' prayer. It's a prayer that Jesus gave his first followers to pray. He can't pray that prayer because one of the requests in it is forgive us our trespasses, which Jesus never had. But one of the things, one of those requests, those six requests in that prayer is lead us not into temptation. Have you ever wondered why we would ask God to not lead us into temptation? Because this very process goes on in the lives of his people where God will allow us to go our own route in order for us to see things that need to change as preparation for work that he has us to do in the future. Each of us has different things we need to learn. Jesus knew precisely what Peter needed to learn. He knows precisely what you and I need to learn. Some of us need to be taught that we can do things. And Peter needed to be taught that there are things he cannot do. (laughs) But whatever the case with us, either way, God shapes our nature, our temperament, and our personality to mold us for his use. So our qualities are what we are by nature, by creation, by God's design. And our personalities are then shaped by his providence in allowing experiences to mature us and humble us and even embolden us if need be. Whatever the need is, God knows what it is, and he allows those experiences in order to supply what is needed. But note this, note this well, that all of what God allows, all of us are different. He knows how different we are, and he knows what he has for us in the future, and therefore what I need to know and learn today. And he allows all of that, but note this, every last bit of it is always for a purpose. There is no experience in the life of God's child that is devoid of God's purpose. So in everything you're going through, everything you've gone through, you're asking yourself why, and God has not given you the specific reason why, but he has told you in Scripture that he has his good purpose and is preparing you for something. And that's precisely what he was doing with Peter. Our calling is built on our nature. But then secondly in your outline, our calling is also built on our new nature. So God calls us, the one who made us and knows what we're like and the diversity of what we're like, and that calling, the thing he, and, and things he has for us are based upon how he has wired us, how he has made us. They're based upon our nature, 
but they're also for the Christian based upon our new nature. And we see this in the life of Peter. We see the struggle that went on in the life of Peter between the old Peter and the new Peter, between the old nature and the new nature. And that's why I say in your outline, our new nature has competition. You see, as a Christian, you've been given a new nature, the Bible teaches, but you've still got competition from the old one. And you see this in the life of Peter. Again, verse 2 of Matthew 10. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter. And Luke chapter 6, Luke says Jesus is the one who called him Peter. Jesus is the one who gave him that name. So his name is Simon, but Jesus gives him a nickname, Peter. Why? Well, Peter, the Greek word Petros, means rock, as many of you know. And from the very first words that Jesus spoke to Peter, he was outlining what his future was was going to be and what he was going to train him to become. In John chapter 1 that we saw last week, the Bible says Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas. You go, man, not another name. Yikes, Simon, Peter, I can't keep. Which one translated as Peter? But here's where Cephas fits in. Jesus spoke Aramaic. And the word for rock in Aramaic is Cephas. And so Peter's given name is Simon. His nickname in Greek is Peter or in Aramaic, Cephas. Both of them mean, Peter, you're going to be called a rock. So why is that? Why did Jesus take, was he not satisfied with just his given name of Simon, but gives him this this nickname of Peter or Cephas, a rock? It's for this reason, friends. Because Peter was, by nature, unpredictable and even unstable. And Jesus is saying, you're going to become as solid as a rock. And Jesus is going to give him the precise experiences that he needs in order for that to happen. And you see this throughout the accounts of Peter's life in the way his two names, Simon and Peter, are used. Simon, his given name, is used primarily in two contexts in Scripture. The first one is just biographical details about him and and his life. And so Mark chapter 1 says they went to the home of Simon and Andrew. It says Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. So here Simon is used, and it's just biographical details. Simon's house, Simon's mother-in-law, or Simon's possessions, or his business. Luke chapter 5 says he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon. Simon and all his companions were astonished at Jesus, and so were James and John, who were Simon's partners. So you have his given name, Simon, used when it's just biographical stuff about it. <clears throat> you know, where he lives, who his relatives are, what his business is. But Simon was not only used of merely biographical matters, but also whenever Simon acted like his old self. When Simon was acting like the old Simon, you find Jesus going, Simon. Jesus, the one who gave him the nickname Peter, calls him Simon on those occasions. Luke 5. Jesus said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let, the nets, uh, let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered. Okay, this is Simon answering. Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. 
But because you say so, I'll let down the nets. You could translate this seriously. You do know I'm a professional fisherman. And James and John are my longtime partners, and we've plied our trade all night and we've gotten nothing. No offense, but you're really telling me how to do my business? Fine, have it your way. That's what he's telling Jesus. That's Simon talking. But then the Bible says this is what happened next. When they had let down the nets, as Jesus said, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full they began to sink. And at that point, Simon the skeptic saw Jesus for who he really is. And notice this carefully, what Luke refers to him as in the very next verse. When Simon Peter saw this. Simon's talking and Simon's a skeptic. But now he sees Jesus for who he really is. And Luke invokes the name that Jesus gave to him. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. His given name, Simon, is used in these episodes of key failure in his life. Do you remember Jesus saying, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat? Here's what Jesus called him on that occasion. And and that occasion that Satan has desired to sift you as wheat is foretelling what's going to happen in just a few days when, in fact, Peter is going to deny the Lord. But here's what Jesus says. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. You see what he's saying? On your own, you're dead. (laughs) And when Jesus was in the garden the night before he was crucified, and Peter should have been watching and praying with him, what did he do? The Bible says he fell asleep. Mark 14 says, Jesus returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Now notice this, Simon, he said to Peter. (laughs) Mark notes, he's talking to Peter, but he calls him Simon. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you'll not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. John, who wrote the book of John, knew Peter very well. He was his lifelong friend, a partner in his fishing business, his neighbor, And in the Gospel of John, he refers to Peter 15 times as Simon Peter. Why? He had seen both sides like few else had. The old Simon and the new Simon, the rock Peter. And as the Lord Jesus did the shaping of his personality, so that his new nature became foremost in his work and in his calling, Peter began to see himself as who it was Jesus had called him to be. And in his last letter, 2 Peter, chapter 1, this is how Peter identifies himself. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. The last time that Jesus referred to him as Simon was that famous incident. After after Simon had, in cowardice, uh, betrayed the Lord. And after Jesus has said, you will do this before the cock crows three times, then in John chapter 21, Jesus restores this man. And he says to him three times this from John 21, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And the reason he says it three times is because 
Three times Peter had denied him. You will deny me three times before the cock crows. Three times he had denied him. And Jesus three times restores him. But notice he says, I'm reminding you who you are, Peter. You're Simon, son of John. It's the last time he would refer to him as Simon. A few weeks, just a few weeks later. On the day of Pentecost when the church is born, who is it but Peter the rock who stands up in the face of danger and preaches the first Christian sermon? And hear this, dear friends. Simon Peter was just like all the followers of Jesus, you and me. We have a new nature, but we still struggle with the old. And Simon is used when he's acting like the old Simon. Peter, when his new calling is is in view. And often he is both Simon Peter. So here's the deal. I am Ken the sinner and Ken the saint. And so are you. Sometimes more sinner than saint. But increasingly, overall, the new nature is to become prominent because the Bible teaches it is dominant. And that's your last point in your outline. Our new nature has control. Thanks be to God. Our new nature has control. Next week, actually next week's Mother's Day in two weeks, I want to look at how things progressed with Peter. And how Simon was transformed into the Peter that we know in in Scripture. And the transformation that the Lord Jesus worked in him and through him and by his experiences. But for now, I want you to understand, friends, that for everyone God calls to himself, that Christ calls to himself, we have our old nature and our new nature, but our new nature, thanks be to God, has control. And it is God's purpose and it is God's promise that if we are His people, the new nature will win. Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. Sin shall not be your master. Our natural and often sinful propensities become dominated by our new nature as God molds and fashions us into the image of Jesus. God takes what we are by nature and He gives us A supernature, a different nature, and one that dominates what we are naturally. And that's why in the title of this message, top of that outline, I say this is about Peter. And the thing that God did with Peter was take him from nature, the natural, to the supernatural. It means this for us, friends. There's use for you. If you're a child of God, no matter how many times you failed, there is use for you. It means there's use for your child. If your child knows Jesus and he or she has strayed or he or she has failed, there is use for him or her. There is use for all of us in the hands of the Master. So I want to conclude by reminding you of the final words of Peter's second letter, Second Peter. Because they sum up what God did in his life. Where he took the raw material with which God had designed him and molded him into the initial leader of the first century church. This is the last verse of that letter. Peter says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, God is the ultimate talent scout. He knows what you are. 
He knows what you're to become. He knows exactly what you need. And he will bring you precisely the experiences you need in order for that to happen. I say in your take-home truth, God made us who we are. And he remakes us into what we should be. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these clear and identifiable stories in the life of those that you have called to be your people, to be your servants. Thank you, Lord, for the recording of what you did in the life of Simon, who became Peter. Lord, you make very clear that he went from one to the other. He went from what he was by nature to what he became supernaturally only because of your grace operative in his life. But what you did with Simon is what you do with all of your people. So help me to know that. Help each of these dear brothers and sisters to know that. Peter failed. Peter failed miserably. But Peter failed because he was there to fail. He was in the game. And you call us into the game, not on the sidelines. To serve you, and though we fail, you pick us up and move us in the next step in the direction that you have for us. Help us, Lord, to go this week then, in the varied circumstances to which you have called us, with that great confidence that you are at work in our lives, to shape us into what we need to become. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.